Chapter 9. The Therapist Reggie is a stoic, unassuming man with a gentle voice and very strong hands. Marla referred him to me the previous year when I had shoulder tightness from too much exercise and not enough recovery. When we first met, Reggie lectured me about not taking the time to rehabilitate my body. This time, he naturally had plenty of material to fuss at me about. He asked questions while he sorted out my pressure points. When did I first notice the problem? What tests was I doing to measure my strength and dexterity? How did I keep up my blood circulation when I wasn't in the sauna? What was my diet like? I could hear his disappointment when I told him I was not going to go back to eating meat. I imagine the interrogation was to distract me from the intense pain I felt each time he pushed a thumb into a pressure point. But he assured me that feeling pain was good. Feeling anything was good. It meant that my nerves were beginning to communicate again in a cohesive way and that I might actually be able to reverse my condition. 90 minutes later, I was exhausted from trying to force my body to relax, but I definitely felt better than when he first got started. I made a promise and an appointment to keep up the treatments every other week. That first appointment really helped me push my exercises to the next level. I even thought about filming movement again. Prior to my paralysis, I'd been uploading a public video every week and regularly filmed private lessons for clients. But when my body stopped working, so did everything else. I literally felt like my world had come to a standstill and doing anything with movement seemed a million miles away. But now I was warm literally, to the idea of moving again in a very real way. I tentatively set a schedule to resume my private and semi-private trainings. To say that I was scared to death about moving in public again is a gross understatement. I was hardly confident enough to leave the house these days, let alone stand in front of a class and have the nerve to tell anyone else what to do with their body. But I pushed past the fear and set up my private classes. My students and I had formed a strong familial bond since the pandemic began, so they were more than happy to start things back up. I trusted them to look after me and to hold me up during class. One of those students is a clinical therapist. When she found out what happened to me, she suggested that I talk to someone. I politely declined. It seemed tedious to try and catch a stranger up on this roller coaster of an experience. Now, to be clear, I am not opposed to the idea of therapy in any way, but at this particular moment, I didn't think that it was the right solution for me. Instead, I focused on tangible things that brought me joy each day. Meditation, my dogs, my two new kittens, sunshine, CBD baths, and of course, naps. I reminded myself every day about my privilege to have the time and the access to recover from the comfort of my home, supported by family and real friends. The best part of every day was working out. It warmed my body up and improved my circulation. It also boosted my endorphins and gave me real hope in my recovery. And when that wasn't enough, I talked to my friends. I'm talking about my actual friends. 
not the many humans who know me in a purely professional or marginally casual sense. Because of my profession, I come in contact with and hold space for a lot of different kinds of people. So it's normal for some of those people to slide into a codependent space and confuse their feelings for me, for friendship. The pitfall is that while they can always rely on me, it would be irresponsible for me to rely on them. So I came to appreciate the few who were my true keepers. And I honored our friendships by taking their calls when they reached out for progress reports and encouragement. Admittedly, most calls and inquiries about my health irritated me because I felt that they were an attempt to collect information for the mere sake of doing so. Or worse, an opportunity to make it about themselves. But my true companions stood out. These were the people who asked nothing of me, but that I keep doing the work to get better. I remain humbled to this day by their unconditional love and support. I also kept busy by strategizing with my team about content and scaling. In some ways, I recognized that my paralysis was the best thing that could have happened to me in the professional sense because it forced me to delegate and to allow those around me to cultivate ideas and blossom on their own without being micromanaged. I'd always considered myself a hands-off kind of supervisor, but in reality, I'm probably more of a control freak. I think the team appreciated that they'd only have to periodically check in with me from time to time about progress, but otherwise, they were free to create and grow on their own. Through it all, I kept notes about my shifts in temperature and mood. When I was anxious, my temperature dropped significantly. My left leg literally felt like a block of ice. When I was depressed, I was prone to angry outbursts. When I felt overwhelmed by the increasing pile of responsibilities and obligations that I could not address due to my current state, I became both anxious and depressed. That would typically lead to a bout of indecision and paralysis, and that could last anywhere from an hour to several days. The most helpful thing about keeping notes was that it allowed me to directly tie my emotional state to my nutrition, movement, and the ability to complete tasks for a feeling of accomplishment. I began to measure my reaction time to stressors and measure how long it took me to get back on track. The practice gave me agency in any number of situations and made it easier for me to apply specific tools to get out of a funk and back to business. My system wasn't perfect. It also wasn't always effective, but for the most part, it worked. As a yoga teacher, I subscribe to the philosophy that life is not always ideal, but the right tools can help you effectively navigate it. So I applied that philosophy to my recovery by cobbling together as many tools as I could research, learn, and put into practice. It helped me deal with the reality that my recovery was anything but linear. There were days when I felt like I was making real progress and days when it felt like I was back to square one. I had to constantly remind myself that a full recovery was not a guarantee. I was lucky to have stopped the progression of nerve damage, but I could not be so naive to believe that I could completely reverse the damage. There were no guarantees. Still, I kept trying, because really, what else was I supposed to do?
Chapter 10 Recovery At the end of 60 days, I started to feel more like myself. It was fair to say that I was about 90%. It occurred to me that my left leg might never warm up and that I might never have full sensation in my right hand. By this time, I'd accepted the nonlinear nature of my recovery, but I held out hope that I'd level out. There were times when I'd feel intense electricity in my right arm and hand to the point where it was nauseating. I'd imagine that my nerves were recalibrating and that I'd eventually get the feeling back in my fingers. But hours later, everything would go numb again and I'd feel like I was right back at the beginning. The best measure of my recovery was my strength. I could teach both virtually and in person at this point, and I could withstand long walks and hikes without getting winded. I was down to monthly B12 injections, although my skin behaved as if I was still getting them daily. Yeah, no fairy tale ending here when it comes to cystic acne and this acne prone skin. It was not a stretch to say I was greeted by at least one cystic pimple every day. They'd quickly come to the surface and burst, leaving a black scar behind. So I learned to ignore them and instead worked on the hyperpigmentation, which seemed like a battle that I was more likely to win. I continued with the light therapy to make my skin hostile to P. acne's bacteria, but otherwise kept my routine simple with cleansing and moisturizing. As my B12 stores went up, the depression noticeably went down. Instead of simply slogging through life minute by minute, I could feel some of the brain fog dissipate so that I could see beyond just one day. I started to make plans again, both personally and professionally. I reached out to friends and colleagues and felt encouraged to talk about more than just what was going on in my body. I also needed less sleep. At the height of my paralysis, I was sleeping up to 16 hours a day. But now my body naturally woke up after six hours and I felt completely refreshed. My digestion also improved, which likely had an effect on my quality of sleep. When things were at their worst, I'd be constipated for days no matter what I ate or drank. But now things were moving normally and my body seemed like it was happy to eliminate again. Before the paralysis, I was drinking about a gallon of water a day. But as I recovered, I found myself too tired to take a sip of water and too depressed to do anything about it. So I upped my water intake to a gallon again by drinking specific amounts in increments so that I wouldn't end up bloated and uncomfortable. Future planning became something to be excited about instead of a chore that caused incredible amounts of anxiety, which would in turn plunge me into a deep depression. I cleared out my office which at that moment resembled Miss Havisham's home of late, bought a new planner and started to map out my next steps. Whether or not I would be back to 100% was a non-issue. What mattered is that I was strong enough to go forward. So forward, I went. Chapter 11, Perspective. If this experience has taught me nothing else, it's that nothing is absolute and everything is relative. The politics of veganism have pit the plant-based against the meat-eating. 
And in my opinion, everyone loses. The reality of this deficiency is that anyone can get it. So before meat eaters celebrate the wonders of eating a steak, know that there's a very good chance that meat eaters can be deficient as well. The simple reason is because food just isn't what it used to be. Animals being consumed today have been pumped full of antibiotics in factory farming. They even have to be supplemented with B12 because pesticides in the foods they consume no longer naturally carry the nutrient. 90% of B12 supplements produced worldwide are fed to farm animals. Farm animals, like us humans, need beneficial bacteria in our guts to make B12. So meat eater, vegetarian, or vegan, everyone can benefit from a B12 supplement. My mistake was ignoring this very crucial nutrient and paying dearly for that miscalculation. The experience has also shifted my perspective in the way I view and respect my body. Before the fall, I was on my way to doing even more amazing things than I'd already learned to do. At 47, I was stronger, faster, and more flexible than I had ever been in my 20s and 30s. When the paralysis set in, I was so confused about how my body could just turn on a dime like that, especially because it wasn't due to something like an unforeseen accident that might cause great bodily injury. It was literally a shutdown from the inside out. It was humbling. In a weird twist, this experience also taught me a few things. I'm right-handed by nature, but without the use of my right hand, I had to learn how to use my left. I can do things with my left hand now that previously seemed impossible. In the quest to find something positive about every experience, I've decided that this is a bit of a blessing. The most significant development for me was how I communicate with my body. Now, instead of ignoring the smallest tweaks, aches, and pains, I pause and take stock. What have I eaten? What did I drink? How did I move? What do I need? Previously, I shrugged off minor discomforts and chalked them up to the strenuous nature of my training. But these days, I take the time to rest and reset and do the work to align my body every day. That's the thing about balance. It's a never-ending endeavor. There is no point when you reach the ultimate balance and simply stop trying. You are always assessing, renegotiating, and executing to stay as balanced as possible, as consistently as possible. Finally, privilege and perspective. In all of this, I recognize my privilege. I recognize my access to information, resources, and people who are willing to help me. I recognize my incredible support system with my husband. I recognize the support from my family and my friends so that I was able to chart and navigate my way back to better health. I am grateful for all of it. None of this would be possible, certainly in not such a short amount of time, without all of the help that I received. The reality is that a B12 deficiency as severe as mine 
demands a 12-month recovery protocol. But after 60 days, I was almost fully functional. I recognize how incredible that is. And I am humbled by my progress and my body's willingness to push through some of the toughest physical setbacks and emotions that I have ever experienced. I told my story as a cautionary tale. Don't take your nutrition for granted. Don't take your movement for granted. Even when you think you are healthy, there's a chance that something is lacking. Get your blood work done. Let someone smarter than you assess you and help guide you to a healthier state. No matter how much you think you know, the truth is that you can't know everything. So check in with people who specialize in nutrition and health. Note to self, even if you do too, just to make sure you're covering all your bases. Don't let your arrogance cost you an arm and a leg. With love and so much gratitude, thank you for listening.